In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Don't be shy. Ghosts and ESP are kissing cousins. That's why they're prevalent in the South. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. In Paratopia, all of our workshops are taught via telepathy. But paid for in cash. Anything goes in Paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. You're listening to Paratopia on 105.3 New Orleans. Unless you're trying to listen to it on 105.3 New Orleans, in which case uh, you're probably not hearing us. Funny how that works. Paratopia, everybody. Paratopia. Paratopia. It is me. It is me. It is J-A-V. Jeremy Vaney coming at you. I don't know. I'm working on my radio voice. Anyway, we have a very special guest. Ooh, we don't mess around, do we? No, 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 no. Other shows, they can tell themselves their gold and brag about it all they want. We actually get the work done. Our guest is a contributor to NPR's All Things Considered. She is the author of Waiting for My Cats to Die, a morbid memoir... I'll let that sink in. She's author of The Restless Sleep Inside New York City's Cold Case Squad. And most recently, she is author of Unbelievable, Investigations into Ghosts, Poltergeists, Telepathy, and Other Unseen Phenomena from the Duke Parapsychology Laboratory. Guess which of those books we'll be talking about. Did you guess Waiting for My Cats to Die, a morbid memoir? You guessed wrong! Our guest also founded something called Echo, an NYC-based online service filled with people who log in every day to talk about whatever, work, love, how hard life can be, what's on TV. And if you've heard of it, it's probably because you wrote about it in a book called Cyberville, Clicks Culture and the Creation of an Online Town. All of that info and so much more can be found on stacyhorn.com, S-T-A-C-Y-H-O-R-N.com. Please welcome Ms.com, Stacy Horn. Stacy, thank you for being here, first of all. Oh, thanks for having me. So your book is uh, unbelievable, and you really delve into uh, a lot of the, um, the psychic research that was going on at Duke. Give us the ins and outs of that. What, what happened? It sounds like you expected it to sort of be a cakewalk and kind of fun, and it sort of was, but it was actually more scholarly than you ever expected. What sort yeah. of research were they doing, and, and what, what, what happened with it? down there essentially thinking that I was going to be writing Ghostbusters. I thought it was just going to be this, you know, fun, light book. And I was looking for that. My last book was about unsolved murder. So, you know, I just wanted a lighter subject. So I was all excited. 
excited. I couldn't wait to get down there. And I get down there and I go to the library and they have over 700 boxes of archives. And so I start, you know, opening up the first boxes. And it was all, like, mostly math, actually, uh, math and science and a lot of stuff that uh, I just didn't understand. And so my first day was a really hard day because I don't have a background in math and science. And so I'm sitting there going, oh, now what do I do? So I started going through the letters. And I had an easier time of it because in the letters there uh, were writing to people and describing their experiments. So they were talking in English. And so I, I focused on these letters because it told me the story of what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it ended up being fun after all because I, I learned a lot about science and how experiments are you know dis- designed and refined and, and how the scientific method works. But also it's, it, it, it did turn out to be a fun thing because you know, every day I was going through these letters and it, you know I never knew what I was going to come across. I came, you know, I would find letters from people all over the country. Um, they were very well known at the time, so whenever anything strange happened, uh, people would write to them and go, you know, I, I had this experience. Please tell me what it was. And so it was like this treasure trove of, of paranormal experience in America at the time. When when you're looking at this stuff, do you get a sense of, or did you interview them and, and get a sense of how they're sort of disdain for paranormal stuff stacks up against their actually studying it? You know, well, a, a lot of the scientists, unfortunately, have since passed on. I did talk to a couple of people, but uh, most of the main people have since died. But you brought up an interesting thing. That was that was a, a big shock to me, was the, the tone of the correspondence between the scientists in the lab and, and scientists around the country. There was just enormous hostility in response to their experiments. And I guess I should explain these experiments. They had started in the late 20s, and their initial mission from Duke was to use the scientific method to see if they could come up with evidence for life after death, to see if they could definitively answer that question once and for all. And so they started by studying mediums, which is what everybody was doing at the time. And this guy, John Thomas from Detroit, had actually paid for them to come down to Duke to look through, you know, I forget, he had something like 800 pages of material. His wife had died, and he had visited mediums all over the country and then um, in Europe. So they so they started with that material, and what they found was that these mediums actually were able to provide a lot of information that there was no um, reasonable way for them to have it, like through normal means, um, especially the the mediums in Europe that you know really had no way of finding out information about this man's family, and they often provided information that he didn't know that later turned out to be true. So they satisfied themselves that okay. These mediums were able to provide information that they couldn't have provided through normal means, but that doesn't mean that they're getting it from the dead, from his dead wife. Um, They could be getting it through telepathy, and that is the ability to get information from other people's minds. So this information that the mediums were supplying may not be coming from John Thomas, that's the guy, um, from his dead wife, but could be coming from his his mind. Mm -hmm. So they thought, well, you know, 
this is a good place to start because we know that when we die, the body dies. So in order for there to be life after death, we have to find something about us that can exist independently of the body. And telepathy is a good place to start. So, so Don, John Thomas at the time was very upset. Um, he didn't want them, you know, he wanted them to continue with the media because his concern was, you know, am I talking to my wife or not? So they told him, okay, you know, it does feel like a side trip, but, you know, we cannot establish definitively, at least not in the laboratory, that these communications are coming from your wife. So let's just start here. It's just, you know, it's just a place to start. If we can, you know, identify, you know, come up with evidence and identify um, telepathy, we can at least rule it out um, in some way. So it's a good place to start. And if we can find evidence for telepathy, it's... It opens to the door. It opens the door to the possibility that there's life after death. So we're going to start here, mm-hmm. and so they devised these experiments to see if they could find evidence of telepathy. And what they did was they started um, with a, just a deck of playing cards, and they started with children, but then they moved on to Duke University students. And, and it was just a very simple student uh, experiment. Could they? Could the students tell them what symbols were on these cards without you know seeing them or not? And they found that. The students could, but they showed they had like preferences for cards that were familiar to them or, or favorite cards, you know, like the Ace of Spades or the King of Hearts. They would, you know, gravitate towards certain cards. So they got this um, other psychologist at Duke, Carl Zener, to design their own deck of cards um, with their own symbols. And, and this is the deck that was, for instance, used in the movie Ghostbusters. It's just a, a deck of 25 cards, um, um, a five sets of five symbols, a star, a cross, a box, a circle, and wavy lines. And they conducted tests um, with these decks, and again, the students were able to tell them what symbols were on the cards without seeing them. And they refined the experiment, um, you know, to eliminate um, fraud and hoaxes. And eventually, they separated the student, uh, the students, and the uh, testers by a screen. And then they separated them by room, and then by uh, different buildings. And then ultimately, they were doing the test double blind, so neither the person test or the student knew which symbols were on the card. And using probability theory and statistics, they were able to determine, um, you know, how many, you know, what was guessing or luck and what was possibly evidence of telepathy. And over and over and over, they found that most people had, you know, at least some ability beyond just sheer chance of telling them what symbols were on these cards. Mm-hmm. And let's go back a second. Are you saying that that if people had a preference for a certain card, that they would accurately predict that card? No, they just would guess certain cards more often. Oh, I see. Let me ask you this. Um, It sounds like a a given now. It sounds like what you're saying is psychic abilities or whatever, even if we don't know ultimately the origin of them, the fact of them is proven. So why is it that uh, it's still a laughing stock topic and not taken seriously? Well, first, it's... from what I've learned, proven is is not the term that um, science scientists prefer to use. They they prefer to say we have found evidence of. <laughs> they don't like to say prove. Um, and yeah, that was my surprise. Like so, they published a book um, and papers um, uh, about their experiments, and there was just an uproar right from the start. Um, and in the beginning, you know, there were some. 
validity to some of their arguments about the test, like the controls weren't tight enough and, and, and they had suggestions to refine the experiments. And so the Duke scientists did, and they still got results um, which showed evidence of this ability, which they chose to call telepathy. And the scientists just, you know, continued to object. They continued to, like, say, okay, what, what do you want us to do? We'll change it. And they kept changing it, and they kept getting results which were never accepted, which is why I called the book unbelievable. And actually, you say in the book here, uh, I want to get this right, so I'm going to read it from the preface that's on your website, stacyhorn.com. Ghosts are what survive of love, real or unseen, they are a testament to love and the hope that no matter what, love lasts. And even though the uh, parapsychologists uh, at Duke wouldn't subscribe to that necessarily, uh, you believe that that's sort of what they're, they're testing out is is I love. think that's ultimately what motivates people in this direction. I mean, if you just strip everything else away, it's the need to know that I continue, the people that I love continue, and these feelings that I cherish and the feelings that people have for me will continue. I mean, what's the point of life after death if I'm not there and the people that I love are not there? Well, does that include, for instance, we had Mark Nesbitt on a few weeks ago who uh, wrote The Ghosts of Gettysburg, and it's all about these sort of Civil War ghost situations that just sort of appear to people. And these, mm-hmm. these things play out over and over again. Uh, so would ghosts, what survives of ghosts or what survive of love, would that apply to a, a haunting like that? No. When I was writing, I was talking about what people, when they think of ghosts and when, when they think of why they even want ghosts or want to research life after death, this is what motivates them. But what actually survives is another story. Um, there's all sorts of evidence that, for instance, these what you just described, that there's an after effect of us, like something of us continues, but it may not be our consciousness. Like what you just described is almost like um, a movie playing and not the people themselves, mm-hmm. just their image. You're what they call residual. Yeah. yeah, I've heard a lot about that. And, and I, like, for instance, I was researching EVP. A lot of it sounded like that, but but not always. Sometimes these, for instance, on the EVPs, they respond to actual questions. So that's not that's more than an artifact. Uh, Stacy, I'm curious about the um, if these people actually went out on ghost investigations and what they might have found from that. I mean, was there was there any kind of good evidence captured by these people on film or on anything else that uh, that's actually viewable today in any way? The whole time I was researching this book, I was looking for, you know, and hoping to find convincing evidence of a single ghost, a single haunting. Um, But here's what I found. Um, Well, first, the Duke uh, Parapsychology Laboratory, they resisted ghosts. They were scientists, and they were looking to apply the scientific method to find evidence of life after death. And essentially, if... If, it, if they couldn't get it into the lab, if they couldn't design an experiment that could be repeated by any scientist all over the world, they were not interested. So ghost investigations, which is something closer to what an anthropologist might do, just wasn't something they were interested in because they didn't think that it could ever be used in any way to establish life after death. It would just always be considered an anecdote and not science. So they avoided it. But that 
that said, um, they did actually do a couple of interesting things. At one point, they they kind of stalled with their ESP experiments. They you know they developed more and more experiments and refined them experiments with ESP and what they called psychokinesis, and that was um, using the mind to move objects, but. I, on around, I think it was like the late 40s, you know, they admitted, okay, we're kind of at a standstill. We need to come up with new experiments. And so what they did was they had all these letters that I mentioned that they were getting from people all over the country describing these experiment, experiences they had, um, mostly um, uh, ghost experiences. And so they thought, well, let's study these letters. Let's do a survey of these letters. And it wasn't so that they could go out and, you know, research them or meet these people, but they thought, let's look at them, let's do a survey and see what patterns emerge. Like, is there anything um, common to all these experiments that, uh, experiences that might suggest an experiment that we could then do in the lab? Let's see what we can learn from them. Okay. And so uh, J.B. Ryan, the guy who was the head of the lab, his wife, uh, Louisa Ryan, who was also a scientist, she was given the job of doing a survey of these letters. And so she wrote a bunch of papers about them. And I focused on two things that were of interest to me. And one was she came up with this theory about ghosts. And what she thought ghosts were were actually, yet again, another example of ESP. She didn't think that ghosts were actually actually ghosts. She thought they were these hallucinations um, that were created by the mind in order to bring information that was gained um, via the unconscious mind to the conscious mind. So the mind had some way of gathering information, but there had to be a way of getting that information to the conscious mind in a way that um, you could understand it. So you would, so the mind would literally create this phantom, usually a familiar person like your dead mother or something like that. And so the information that you got would come via her because that is somebody you would listen to. But she didn't really believe that it was your dead mother. It was just this visual drama that your mind created in order for you to use and access this information that it was getting. That was her theory. Huh. But she admitted that her theory did not fit all um, the letters and all the situations that she heard about. And I, I had it in the book, but a 3%. She said 3% of the letters in her collection actually did show possible evidence for ghosts. She didn't call them ghosts. She uh, had a, a, a more distant term, like they didn't want to be associated with ghost research. I think she called it um, incorporeal personal agency, but she meant ghosts. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but that makes that it sound was, so much more important. Actually, right? Excuse me? I said that makes it sound so much more important than ghosts, you know. Well, she she was a scientist, and she did not want to be associated with ghost research. And right. But she did concede that 3% of these letters, which is actually a lot of letters, um, did show possible evidence of ghosts. Huh. Well, I, I think um, I think it's probably likely, likely that a lot of people that listen to our show have heard the term poltergeist thrown around uh, the ghost realm a lot. And... Uh, and I know that most people who who think of ghosts slash or a poltergeist, they, they're kind of separated as two distinctly different things. One being mischievous and destroying objects, moving things around, 
in general, not necessarily an apparition of any kind, but but a poltergeist. Now, I'm curious if the idea, and I'm sure you you may have ran across the idea that uh, poltergeist activity is usually brought on by uh, adolescent children or children going through puberty in a home where all of a sudden these things just start happening. Uh, And I'm curious if this is where... In this 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 Duke University study is that where this came from? Were you able to figure that out at all? That where these ideas came from? Yeah, where that notion of you know pubescent uh, kids, I think predominantly female, uh, are associated heavily with this is what it causes poltergeist activity. That it has more to do with the child. Uh, growing it into adulthood than it does any separate spiritual entity of some sort. That theory did not originate with them, but they were interested in, in it. They were interested in poltergeists um, because they believed that poltergeists were not um, mischievous spirits. And they thought it was somebody in the house with um more dramatic abilities of psychokinesis. Like most people that showed in in their experiments that showed any ability towards um, being able to move objects could only move them the tiniest, tiniest, almost infinitesimal bit. And so they thought poltergeists, um, you know, it's it's hard to summon up things in the lab, but, you know, any kind of ability, it's hard to summon it up in the lab. But they thought perhaps, you know, in the field, these abilities of psychokinesis might be more pronounced. And that's what they thought poltergeists were. So they were always very interested in studying poltergeists, unlike ghosts. They were more curious about poltergeists. And I did write about one poltergeist case that they did research. Um, The problem was whenever they heard about a poltergeist case, by the time they heard about it, it was over because these things are usually fairly short-lived, apparently. They go on for maybe weeks weeks or months, whereas hauntings can go on for years. So they did, um, in 1958, they they were told about a case in Seaford, Long Island, in New York, and they called up the family and, and asked, you know, if, you know, if it was still going on and, and would they welcome help? And the family said, oh, God, yes, please, please come help. <laughs> and so Gaitha Pratt, one of the scientists there, literally got on the plane that day and was in New York a few hours later. And he gets to the house and uh, knocks on the door. He opens the door and something immediately crashes in the basement and there was nobody in the basement. So they all go running down to the basement. And I think it was a record player. And while they were all in the basement, something crashes upstairs. Something on the dining room table um, was pushed off the table onto the floor. So he's really excited. It's like an active case. And he stayed there for a month and he wrote this, um, I forget, you know, something like 45 page paper. And he studied. 67 events um, that had happened in the house some while he was there and concluded, I believe, that 17 of them could not be explained by normal means. And he um, ultimately decided that this was a genuine case. I mean, he couldn't pronounce that it the case, a poltergeist case, because again, there's no way of proving that one or one way or another. All he could say was these events, like things moving off shelves and tables and, or, or coming off walls um, were moved when there was nobody there to move it. 
Right. And this was a fun case to research. Like when the thing st first started moving, the family um, called the police, which is something people often do, which I, I, I laugh at just because my book before this, was, I had wrote a book about the NYPD's cold case squad. And so I spent a few years you know, working with the police department. I know what police are like, and I just the idea of somebody calling the police and, you know, help me with a ghost, you know. <laughs> I could just see the looks on their faces. Right. So they sent over this patrolman, and things started moving when he was there. Um, one of the things that kept happening in this particular case was um, the the tops of bottles would would pop off, and the contents would you know spill and pour out. And so he gathered all the bottles, put them into the bathtub, and then called his desk sergeant and said, "Okay, now what do I do?" And the detective was assigned to the case, and and the, the Nassau County police, you know, spent a few months and they found the case records and they let me look at them. And it was like this big fat file. This detective did everything he could to find an explanation for these events. And and he I mean he talked to engineers, scientists, business people, architects, contractors, the fire department, Con Edison I'm I'm sorry, it was Lilco, the, the local energy company. Everyone, and nobody could explain how these things possibly could happen. I mean, he went over to Mitchell Field and tried to, you know, find if there was any correlation between take the takeoff and landings of airplanes and when things move through the house. And things would move when people were standing there watching them. Oh. I read in, in the police files, you know, nothing it, – it, it's always, you know, over-dramatized in movies, but it's still pretty spectacular, like incidents where, like, somebody would be in the bathroom, and they would just sit there and watch, like, a, a tube of, of shampoo just slowly slide across the bathroom counter. You know, it's only, like, you know, what, 12 inches, but still, imagine standing there and seeing that yourself. <laughs> yeah. And so the detective, uh, unfortunately, he had passed on as well, but I tracked down his daughter and I spoke to her and I said, do you know what your father thought? You know, what did he really think? And she said, um, you know, my father was a cop and, he, you know, he thought just what you thought he thought. You know, at the beginning, he just thought, yeah, it's the kids. Everyone, there was two children in this house. And so that theory of the children somehow being responsible, they were always looking at the kid. And she said uh, one day he was there investigating, and he had the boy by the hand, and they were just about to go into the basement where they had just heard a noise, and something hit him on the back of his legs, and he turned around, and it was just a small metal statue of a horse, but there was nobody around who could have thrown that at him. And he just, you know, she said for the rest of his life, he didn't know where to put that. And he also concluded that the case wasn't a hoax. And this, I found this, like everybody I found alive who worked on this case said the same thing. They go, I don't, you know, I don't believe in ghosts, but it wasn't a hoax. I don't know how to explain it, but those things, you know, happened. Those things went flying. They fell off shelves. You know, pictures were knocked and crucifixes were knocked off the walls. And, you know, those kids were not responsible for that. It sounds a lot like the, uh, the scientist answer which is it's kind of where all this seems to be going is that the scientists actually investigated these things and they go yeah there's something there but i don't know what it is you know i, I mean it seems to be like the the pervasive thought here is that uh, everybody knows there is something going on but they can't quite put their finger on it in any real meaningful way or any kind of provable way 
If that's the uh, tragedy of the story, I think. I mean, I think they established that they they came up with this evidence for what they chose to call telepathy, but they were unable to learn anything about it. So they could never explain it. They couldn't enhance it. They couldn't control it. All they could do was over and over and over to show evidence of it. Huh. Well, I'm curious what uh, – go ahead, Jerry. Oh, I was just going to ask, was there any uh, military interest in any of these studies? Um, some things. Um, the Office of Naval Research gave them a grant at one point to study homing pigeons to see if they were using ESP to find their way, which they were never able to determine. And at one point, um, the, the uh, uh, I think it was the Army hired Grind to see if uh, dogs could use ESP to detect landmines. Um, because landmines at that point were starting to be manufactured in plastic and the existing equipment they have um, couldn't detect plastic. So they were trying everything, essentially, um, to find landmines. So uh, Ryan was able to do tests and found that the dogs could uh, detect landmines, um, but unfortunately it wasn't 100% and they were not interested in anything that was not at least approaching 100% because this was a lethal situation. It was a matter of life and death and like 60% was just not good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I found a report from 1963 where the Air Force had literally built an ESP machine, um, a random number generating computer. Um, but in their test, they found no evidence of ESP. Hmm. I'm uh, I'm really curious. I mean, I know something that can be tested and checked out in a lab is a Ouija board, and I'm curious if they ever got to that or what their end result of that was. They they didn't they didn't think that there was anything to Ouija boards. They thought it was all. Um, the, the subconscious of the person um, operating the Ouija board. They did not think it was spirits, um, anything to do with life after death. They thought it was solely the subconscious wishes and desires of whoever was operating the board. So they did not study Ouija boards. Huh. And actually, you know, I don't know about Ouija boards myself. I didn't study them, but uh, you know, as I was reading these letters, I, I came across a lot of letters from people who were writing them about the messages that they were getting from the Ouija boards, and it was always horrible. I mean, I, I, nobody ever, at least not in the letters that I came across, no one ever got good news from a Ouija board. It was always <laughs> these terrible things, like this one This one I came across, I think that I included in the book where this Ouija board told this woman that she had to choose between her son or her parakeet. Um, <laughs> Sophie's choice. Yeah, so she chose her son. But but they were always, like, very, very disturbing messages. And the people that writing them, you know, you, you can only tell so much from a letter, but they always seemed like people that were disturbed to me. Hmm. Have you ever used a Ouija board? Yeah. Yeah. Did it was it spectacular or was it nothing? I always got messages that didn't really make any sense, but I thought it was fun myself. I mean, when I was doing it, I was a teenager and it was just, you know, me and my friends and it was fun. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't have thought it was fun if I got the kind of messages that I read about. I mean, I, I'm trying to remember more specific examples, but it was always, you know, you know, danger and murder and and just horrible stories that that were just freaking the people out who got them and just 
and never never information that they could act on like oh you know so and so is going to kill you avoid this person it was always very ambiguous dangerous threatening stuff when you uh, hear theories um, about, you know, I don't. I'm sorry if I'm insulting anyone who believes in Ouija boards. I'm just oh, oh, please, <laughs> <laughs> not here. You're not. <laughs> um, no, I, I was going to say if, if, when you, you come across these theories about uh, that it's all in the mind or the mind somehow playing out, um, projecting outward some external image that interacts with this environment in some virtual reality sort of way. Uh, that almost That's seems not like... the same as saying it's all in the mind. Well, uh, but either in either case, uh, don't you think the explanation is more spectacular almost than ghosts? Yeah. Like, I mean, why would what... go to that as, as if that's like a better explanation or more palatable explanation, I guess I should no, say? No, I agree completely. I end the book with, like, to me, so I, so I didn't find anything that was terribly convincing to me about ghosts, but I did find the experiments for ESP convincing. Like, I, I, I looked into all the objections to their research and found that the objections were not valid, and the, the research is solid. So to me, the idea that there is another source of information in the world that we don't understand but is nonetheless real is very, very exciting. And, and I talked to this guy, Robert John, who had headed the Pear Laboratory at Princeton. Do you know about this? You must, right? Um, I, I don't know enough to talk about it. <laughs> there, there was a lab until recently. I think they closed two, two years ago, or was it last year? But um, it, yeah, it was, it was a couple years ago. And it, it, that, this is the one where they had like the big plinko uh, experiment, sort of. I didn't study their experiments. When I talked to Robert John, I wanted to talk to him more on a personal level because. As I said, the whole time I was researching this book, it was just I saw all this hostility that came at these scientists their entire life. It was just like these snarky, nasty letters and, and papers written about their work and op-eds and critiques. It was just really nasty. And I just I couldn't imagine having to withstand a lifetime of that. Like when I write a book, if I get a bad review, it feels awful, but it's, you know, one or two bad reviews, and it's just over. Like, the reviewers leave you alone after that. These scientists, like, they were not satisfied with just one denouncement. They would just go at this work as if, you know, it was their life goal to make sure that it didn't exist. And I just wondered what it was like to withstand that. And also, the objections to the rhymes, like a lot of the scientists tried to say, well, you know, the rhymes, their PhDs are in botany, for God's sakes. I mean, if they were real scientists, like physicists, you know, perhaps we, you know, we would have been more open-minded about their experiments. I mean, they tried to to say that it wasn't the experiment so much, but that the Rhines were not real scientists. And if real scientists had done this, we would have paid attention. So Robert John, who headed the Pear Laboratory, is a physicist. And he was the dean of, um, I think it was applied engineering at uh, Princeton before he started this lab. So he's a real scientist. I mean, there's just no way that you can get around it. And yet he had the same um, reaction to his work as Ryan did. They weren't any more accepting um, towards him than they were towards the Ryans. In fact, you know, people with Nobel laureates have gone on record as saying that the research is valid and indicates something that needs 
needs to be explained, and they're not listened to either. But I was, but so when I want, so when I went to inter, interview Robert John, I just wanted, I wanted to just talk personally, like you know, what was it like to spend a lifetime and get this kind of response and. As you can imagine, you know, he it, it it was not a pleasant thing, and and he has resentments about his peers. But I forget why I brought him up. There was something to do with what we were talking about. Ouija boards. No. <laughs> oh yes, now I remember. So I so I said to him, okay, all that aside, it is very exciting to me these experiments and. How do you explain them? And he was talking about the need um, for science to start um, looking and trying to think about the possibility that there's an information field, like there's a you know a gravitational field, um, mm -hmm. a field of electromagnetism. Maybe there is an additional field, an, an information field, and we have to take this into account when we look at you know the forces operating in the universe. And I thought that was a very interesting way of putting it, because when I was when I was researching the book and researching their experiments, that's what it felt like to me. It didn't feel like like I didn't get the sense that there were personalities out there trying to communicate. It just felt like the information was just out there in some way, and people were just tapping it in in only the most crude way um, via these ways that the Rhines chose to explain as telepathy and clairvoyance. Um, but. It's un it's not understood. So now, when and whenever I get a scientist who's willing to talk to me about this, you know, I ask them to just mull it over and, and think about these things. And and I do find here and there scientists who you know are open to these results and and thinking about trying to explain them. I found a very interesting quote in another book from Freeman Dyson. Mm -hmm. Very famous physicist who says that he believes ESP exists, um, but he thinks that because emotion seems to be such a necessary component that we will never be able to find the laboratory experiment to be able to produce it because there's just no way of controlling emotion in a lab, mm -hmm. which is something the, the Rhines did find themselves too, that, that, that how people felt seemed to have something to do with their ESP abilities. Did you ever, uh, were you ever invited along on any sort of ghost hunting expeditions or anything along those lines? Uh, well, no. The 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 Duke Power Psychology Laboratory didn't do that kind of thing, and it, it exists today as the Rhine Research Center. But it's it's more they do then they do continue to do experiments, but they don't. As far as I know, they themselves do not conduct research in that area. So that was the focus of my book. So no, I didn't do anything like that. I mean, I'd love to do something like that, but do I you, haven't been invited. <laughs> do you yeah. pay attention at all to uh, alien abduction, UFO type stuff? Um, no, but I'm, I am very, very, very curious about that. It, it came up a little bit in my research, like starting in the late 40s. Um, as I was going through these letters, and, and that was another thing, it was just interesting seeing like the wave of of 
public interest in in the United States towards you know various things. So starting in the late 40s, all of a sudden they started getting letters about UFOs, and that continued to be big. Um, I think up until the 60s. Um, and then I stopped most of my research at 1965. That's when the lab clo closed. But yes, they, they did get a bunch of, of letters about UFOs, but they declined <laughs> to research them since they, they felt that, that they were focusing on finding evidence of life after death. And by then, they were completely focused on ESP as a means of doing that. And UFOs had nothing to do with this, this mission. But I did, like, I would look at who, oh, but not to a great d degree, but I would look at who wrote the letters and, and research them and try to see what that was about. And, and unfortunately, I, I didn't write about it in the book. I was just curious, so I don't have it, like, in my head, but there was this um, group in California that a guy named Gerald Hurd was a part of, and that's the guy that kept writing him. And, and Ryan kept in touch with him, and they had a group, the Civilian Saucer Investigation Group, I, I'd have to look it up, I don't have it in my head, but it was a bunch of people in California, including scientists and military, who were looking into this. And it was really interesting, and it led me to like a bunch of little weird side trips, and this guy that felt that um, the EVP voices, except it wasn't called EVP at the time, um, he thought that they were not ghosts, but aliens. Hmm. Hunt, a saucer speak, I think was the name of the book. Huh. Well, what I was going to say, it, you know, it, it's interesting. Jeff and I, uh, on this show, when we talk about alien abductions and UFOs and that sort of thing, uh, try to make it clear that it's really a misnomer. You know, we don't know, ultimately, aliens or any of that stuff are involved, uh, but that, essentially, it's a Rorschach test, and the only thing we know is that the inkblot exists, the what? That the ink blot itself exists, whatever that is, uh, exists, and how we perceive it depends on our own personal, cultural, psychological filters. And it sounds like what you were saying before is that that that's sort of a prevalent theory about um, ghosts and, e and and ESP as well. So can all of this stuff sort of be, you think, lumped into the same, you know, field of information that sort of comes at us through these various disguises of our own making? Perhaps. And it's interesting that you use the word filters because that's what uh, Robert John uses a lot, too. He believes that there's there's various filters that explains um, what information is transmitted and to whom or how. Um, it's just we don't know what those filters are yet, but there is some sort of filtering. And, and I, I looked into this guy um, in ca uh, Canada, uh, Michael Persinger, who also is looking at things like this. But what you just said is very interesting. Like, and, and I, I, do, oh, I do want to bring, talk about that because when I was, one of the things that Louisa Ryan um, discovered in when she was doing the survey of the letters of people's experience with ghosts, one of the things that she noticed and what I wrote about was people hear ghosts more than they see them. And so when I read that, you know, I, I just, you know, I was at my computer, so I Googled auditory hallucinations and found that there is all this research, current research, which seems to indicate that a lot of people hear things, and it's not 
um, mental illness necessarily. It used to it used to be felt in um, the psychology community and psychiatric community, the medical community, that if you heard voices, it was a sign of some sort of mental illness, schizophrenia, or many other things. But they've now since amended that. I mean, sometimes it is um, evidence of schizophrenia, but they found that perfectly normal people, you know, with no mental illness whatsoever, hear voices. And I mean, there's study after study after study um, that seems to corroborate this. You know, they study various groups, college students, you know, all these groups, and, and find people hear voices. In fact, it, ever since then, like if I'm in a group of people, I'll go, anybody hear voices? And there's always people in every group that say, yes, I hear voices. And it's not, you know, voices that tell them anything frightening, and it's not voices that say anything at length, but from time to time they hear voices. And um, so just at the time that I was, um, Finding this out and reading these studies, this guy um, came out with a book about it, and of course now I can't remember his name, but I asked him about that, and, and I quoted him the book, and he said something very interesting that is close to what you say, like, okay, so a lot of people are hearing voices. You know, what is the explanation? I mean, it depends, you know, you know. It, at the time when there was no other explanation available, you know, some they, people would think, oh, it's angels or God or the Virgin Mary speaking to me. And then, you know, at a certain point, oh, it's ghosts speaking to me. And, and then in the 50s, oh, it's aliens speaking to me. And the psycho, psychological community would say, no, it's your insane self speaking to you. <laughs> um, but what is the explanation when someone is not mentally ill what are those voices? And he basically said it's like it's entirely up to the person what explanation they're going to land on to explain them. And and it's it's basically what I just said. You know, some people go it's it's ghosts, it's aliens, and we don't know. <laughs> Jeff, uh, I'm curious uh, when when you were studying any of this stuff, uh, there's kind of a I don't know, pervasive thread that kind of has run through at least my side of this thing on, on the show, which is that paranormal events seem to happen uh, when you tend to dig into them. And I'm sure that in the course of writing a book, you become pretty engrossed in the subject as a whole. Uh, during your time in writing this book, did you yourself find any odd synchronicities or or have any odd experiences at all while you were writing this book? No. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Here goes but, that. <laughs> but, you know, I was actually, I, I didn't want it. Like, I, I'm a fearful kind of person. In fact, when I was researching the EVP voices, I, I was doing it at night when I first started. And so I was online listening to all these different recordings that people have uploaded. And, right. you know, they never sound normal. They always, these low, raspy voices that are terrifying. <laughs> and so, like, <laughs> after about a couple hours of this, you know, I, I just, I literally looked up into, you know, the, the, toward the ceiling and i just said if there are any ghosts here do not talk to me <laughs> well there you go so there you go jeremy nah. <laughs> uh, no so uh, i so i'm resistant i'm resistant but 
I feel less so now. Now I feel a little a little more open to it. Like since then, I've talked to a lot of people. I mean, I guess it's kind of like this thing with auditory hallucinations and uh, how they've discovered that it's now um, people who are not mentally ill are hearing things. As I was writing this book, uh, you know, I talked to a lot of people and have gotten email from a lot of people about their ghost experiences. And prior to writing this book, if I had gotten any of these letters or talked to any of these people who told me about ghosts, I would just uh, had immediately assumed that the people were delusional, that they didn't really see a ghost, they didn't really hear a ghost, that these things, you know, they imagined them, they were drunk, whatever, but it didn't really happen. And now, since doing all this research, I accept that these things happen. Right. I don't necessarily accept people's explanations for them, but I don't think they're crazy. I think they really did hear or see these things. Right, absolutely. Did you, and I have to kind of preface this by saying that we have a gentleman on our show. We've had him on twice. His name is George Hansen. Uh, He's actually spent three years at uh, the Ryan Research Center in Durham. Uh And uh, he's written a book uh, called The Trickster and the Paranormal. Uh-huh. And in there, he details, well, he came on our show a second time, actually, to detail two aspects of uh, what surrounds paranormal events, and that's marginality and anti-structure. And this has recently been talked about on our message board as well. And I, I found it really interesting when you said, you know, that, that the uh, pure scientists, uh, you know, kind of put down the rinds, oh, well, you're just botanists. What the hell do you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, George points out that this is not in any way unique, that it is always going to be taken up by people who will ultimately be marginal or marginalized by it. And, and uh, you know, he I think the best analogy that he brought up on our show was uh, looking at ghost hunters, taps on sci-fi. Um, you know, they collect really interesting uh, data every now and then. They'll hit on something really pretty spectacular. And they are well-funded, apparently, through Sci-Fi Channel and all that. And they're making money, so they seem very successful. And I'm saying to George, well, what the hell is marginal about that? And his answer was, well, they're plumbers. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, there's not a scientist in the mix here. You know, that's why it's marginalized. And But I don't and, think that's yeah. true anymore. I, I well, uh, there's No, there's definitely, there's definitely been a change. There's... Um, there's a physicist named Michio Kaku. Are you familiar with him? Oh, yes. He wrote this book that came out um, last year called The Physics of the Impossible. Mm-hmm. And he goes through um, various, like, things that are, you know, fun to believe, you know, time travel, um, robots, you know, all sorts of strange things. I, I don't know if he does UFOs, but he he does telepathy and psychokinesis. And he goes through all these various things, and he talks about whether or not they violate the laws of physics as we understand them and if they are theoretically possible. And he puts telepathy and psychokinesis in the category of things that do not violate the laws of physics. So they are theoretically possible. And I talked to a physicist at Stanford, Andre Lind, who's very well known. He's um, the co-author of the inflationary theory, inflation theory, um, which I'm not a scientist, so I can't explain it, but apparently it's a big deal. <laughs> and I talked to him about, um, you know, whether or not, you know, he could mull over these results and what explanation um, he might have for them. 
And he pointed me to something that he wrote that I, I just loved, and I quoted in the book. And it was it was a part of his paper, and it said um, a paper he wrote, and he says, "Is it possible?" that consciousness, like space-time, has its own intrinsic degrees of freedom, and that neglecting these will lead to a description of the universe that is fundamentally incomplete. And what he's basically saying is something very similar to what the Rhines were saying, but, um, and they always thought consciousness, consciousness, by the way, a better understanding of consciousness would explain these effects. And they didn't have access to quantum mechanics at the time. I mean, it, it existed, but it was not something that was really understood except for, you know, a very small number of people at the time. So he's basically saying consciousness could have its own intrinsic degrees of freedom. So he's basically saying, be independent of the physical body. And he, he's not saying it does or it doesn't, but he's saying it is possible and we should perhaps look at this. And if we don't look at this, we may not understand completely how the universe operates. And so when, when people like this, like him and Kaku and Freeman Dyson, who comes right out and says, I believe ESP is real, I think we do have evidence of a slow acceptance, and I think it, quantum mechanics may have a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I think that's definitely helped matters a little bit. I, I do agree with you that a lot of the um, uh, scientific community is starting to at least look out the corner of their eye at it more so right. than they than they ever have before. And the people that are saying stuff like this are not getting ridiculed. It used to be that the minute you showed an open mind about this, you were considered a, a nutcase. Oh, absolutely. And nobody's calling these people nutcases. Right. Um, except maybe certain skeptical communities, uh, you know, which are... But they have a bias and agenda, so... Well, absolutely. Um, and that's the other part of... of uh, my question here is how many skeptical people have written you and have said, uh, you know, all sorts of explanatory things to you about your book and what you may or may not have reached in the end of it? I ignore them. They are, they, they're not objective. And, uh, and unlike Ryan, I'm not interested in, in engaging. If you have an open mind, fine. Otherwise, I'm not going to waste my time. Wow. You're not bitter. <laughs> no, I don't want to be bitter, which is why I won't even begin. Wow. Well, you're smart. Your blood pressure that's, is probably excellent. That's damn good advice. <laughs> I wish I wish we listened to that. Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> I know. It, like, I, I, one person reviewed my book and took it apart, but the only way they could t take it apart was basically say that I said things that I didn't say and then say that I like omitted stuff that I didn't omit, you know. But like they said, they didn't take in, I didn't take into account luck. Like I didn't explain that in when I was explaining probability theory, and I had I explained all about this stuff. I mean, they just had the only way they could tear me apart was by lying. Yeah, they see what they want to see. Yeah. So what now for you personally, as sort of you know as objective as you can be, the objective outsider the writer calling through all this stuff. What is your takeaway? What's your theory on it? I, I, I don't. I'm not a scientist, but I did, I think I mentioned, I did end my book with um, 
I said there seems to be another source of information in the world that we cannot explain. We don't know how it's, it's, this information is transmitted. We don't know how we process it, but we seem to have this ability of gathering information that has not been explained. And I think that's very, very exciting. Every, you know, wherever I go, I try to find out, you know, I talk to people and, and try to find explanations for it. Um, there's these theories about parallel universes, and so I've, I've, I've asked, you know, scientists, could it be, you know, just a leakage of information of some sort from another universe? I mean, I, nobody will answer that. Nobody that I've spoken to will answer that question. Um, but it's, it's to me, it's exciting, and, and it, I, I wish I was a scientist so I could explore that question myself. Do you sort of land more on that it's, us talking to ourselves or us, it sounds like you're saying us accessing something, but do you think that there is something trying to talk to us? I don't, I don't know. I, every once in a while I read something that does seem to indicate consciousness, like a personality, but most of it doesn't to me. Most of it, it, it's almost like the information is out there like a big cloud of the internet, you know, that you know, somehow I'm wirelessly accessing, and it's not conscious. It's like some, you know, invisible library. I, I don't know how to describe it. And we're just tapping into it rather than someone communicating to us. But I don't know. I just I don't understand why we would tap into it for these reasons. Like, why not give ourselves something better than just I'm safe, I'm in heaven, or, you know, whatever those sort of, sorts of things are? You lost me. Well, in other words, why not tap into it for, like, uh, cool mathematical formulas or <laughs> a way off this crazy rock or, you know, some real information that you can use as opposed to just sort of grandma coming back and saying, I'm safe and I'm in heaven. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what, I, well, what or, or... Like the quality of information we're tapping into is kind of superfluous um, or reassuring in some way, but not well, really deep or meaningful in a larger sense, I guess. That's because the people that who are relating these kinds of stories, that's the information that they are looking for. I mean, when, when I go on the Internet, for instance, you know, using that analogy, you know, I'm researching one thing, you're researching another, you know, my brother is researching another thing, you know, you, you find the information that you're looking for. You know, you go to the library and you, you know, you pick out the book that you want and you read about what you want and you learn what you want. But our methods for accessing them are so crude that there's really no way of knowing what information is even available to us. That you know, it could be vast and and and, and much more rich and dense and and useful than what we've tapped so far. Well, also, Jeremy, let me let me point this out. Uh, if you watch the the film that was posted on our message board about fractal geometry, you know, Arthur C. Clarke basically hosted this thing and said that. Uh, you know, fractal geometry was an amazing discovery, probably the biggest mathematical discovery ever. And then, so, but its practical uses weren't really known. Like, what do we really do with this? And uh, wouldn't you know it, the guy who found out what to do of a practical use for this thing got it in a dream on the anniversary of his father's death. So, you know, could that be related to all of this kind of thing that, that maybe something meaningful is coming out of it, like cool mathematical uh, theorems and all that kind of thing? Yeah. Uh, but, uh, Stacey, I, I, would be, uh, I would be a really bad guy if I didn't, uh, you know, re read this and ask you a question about this since you've written this book. And I'm reading this. Stacey Horn, 
My second book, Waiting for My Cats to Die, a morbid <laughs> memoir, came out in 2001. It's about my midlife crisis on one level, but really on a deeper level, it's about this. I don't want to die. <laughs> so, Stacy, how do you feel about that now that you've written this book? It doesn't change anything. Like, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing that I found in my research that indicates that I am going to continue beyond death. Hmm. Your cat will be happy to hear that. <laughs> no, I, no. I mean, I hate to say it, but the fact yep. that the the world is full of information, there there's nothing in there that says that I will always exist to access it. Alas. Which doesn't mean that I won't. I'm just saying I, I didn't find that. And I, and I didn't find that within the research at the Duke Parapsychology Laboratory. I mean, it could be elsewhere. My, you know, I focus my research on their work. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, what you found in that was a big question mark, essentially, really. I mean, correct? Yes, it is a big question mark. Like that guy I, I mentioned in Canada, Michael Persinger, he's a neuroscientist, and he did these experiments where he he said that um, certain areas where um, paranormal activity is supported, um, he discovered um, was electromagnetically noisy, is what he said. And he spent a long time writing down um, the patterns, again, not a scientist, so I, I'm probably describing this wrong, that would emerge at these places. And, and he, he built a helmet that recreated them. Right. And people would put you know you know about these experiments. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So I talked to him. Well, I'll just finish. So he, people put on these helmets and they and they see things. They see apparitions, either ghosts or or um, some people see angels, devils, you know, Jesus Christ. But when I was speaking to him, a, a lot of what he said, um, or rather, emailing, we were emailing. Um, it started to sound similar to things that um, Robert John had said to me about um, filters, which you brought up before. And so at a certain point, I said to him, so he was talking about these patterns that come and go. And I said, well, is it possible that these electromagnetic patterns represent um, consciousness of some sort that is intermittent? And he said, yes. So I, I tried to, to, to pin him down a little more about um, if he thought then that meant that there was such a thing as ghosts, except I didn't phrase it that way. I wrote about it. I forget how I put it. And his answer was kind of long and convoluted, but he basically said maybe. Hmm. So was he I, I didn't expect him to say that because yeah, he right. he's famous for not saying that. Right. Exactly. He seemed to think that the the I thought he he thought that the helmet seemed to indicate that it was just these electromagnetic fields and it was not consciousness and but he seems to be open to that possibility. Hmm. So he's saying essentially that the electromagnetic uh, uh, fields aimed at certain parts of the brain may not be hallucinatory as we think of it, but rather open up perceptions that we don't normally have. Right, like it's 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 consciousness expressing itself in this way. Hmm. Wow, we got to get perhaps, him on the show. Perhaps he's not saying it is. <laughs> what? Yeah, we got to get him on the show. I mean, uh, 
And I think that would be a great guest as well. I mean, You should uh, read his papers. They're, they're, I actually did read them, and, and they were very, very interesting. He, he, he has investigated you know, some of these places, and the stories are interesting regardless of what you believe. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, we should probably wrap up here. Uh, is there anything that you want to promote? Any any sort of event coming up or anything like that? Just my book, Unbelievable. I worked very hard. I spent years writing it, tried to do a good job, tried to be fair to everybody. <laughs> All right. The, uh, Larry, uh, Larry King, the book is unbelievable. The guest, Stacey Horn. Thank you very much. And if people want to learn more about you, they can go to stacyhorn.com. Your book is available everywhere, correct? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think at this point it's harder to find things in bookstores. It's easier to just go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or whatever online bookstore you use. Okay. Very good. Fantastic. Well, Stacy, thank, thank you so much for uh, spending an hour with us. And uh, don't be a stranger to these parts. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I had fun. Hi, this is Richard Dolan. You're listening to Paratopia. Wait, Paratopia Radio? No, Paratopia is fine. That was good. <laughs> get, get that last part, too, where I say, wait, Paratopia Radio? <laughs> Hi, this is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You know, there are several ways that you can get UFO, UFO Magazine. Magazine. Yeah, we know, Bill. We know, we know, we know. Just shut up. Just give us one way. Don't tell us you're psychic and, you know, give it 8,000 phone numbers and take 15 minutes of our time where we just want to hear the show. Just tell us how we can get UFO Magazine in one way. Okay, okay. Just go to www.ufomag.com. Subscribe online. You happy? Yeah. Was that so hard? Actually, harder than you know. For esoteric research and investigation into the enigmatic. Eerie Radio is a weekly podcast that features interviews with the world's leading paranormal researchers. Download episodes of Eerie Radio from your favorite podcatcher or directly from the show website at www.eerieradio.com. Eerie Radio. Listen. Learn. Laugh. So, young Jeffrey, as you were going to piddle, uh, yeah. I was looking at our message board, and I have your webcam on, and it takes up a good fourth of my screen uh, as I'm reading, and I see a full-figured something, <laughs> I think you, playing a joke on me, uh, run across the camera, but run to, I know the layout of your room, run to where there's no room to run to. Right, all my guitars are on that wall. <laughs> so, what did I just see? <laughs> well, I'm not sure if I if we mentioned this on the show or not, but when Mark Nesbitt was here, and I'm not sure how many people even even realized that when Mark came on the show, Mark Nesbitt came on the show, he actually came to my house uh, and came to the home studio to sit down and do his interview, which was really great, being able to be face-to-face with somebody to do an interview for a change was great. And... Uh, uh, his lovely wife came with him and they spent the, uh, I don't know, maybe a half hour with us beforehand and maybe a little shorter than a half an hour after the interview. And, uh, they are 
or, or have worked with a lady named Lane Crosby, who is going to be a guest on a future show. And uh, Lane is a medium. And normally, I have to admit, and, and I'm sh- sure that Lane won't mind me saying this because we've corresponded in emails back and forth about her coming on the show. Uh, I wasn't a big believer in that kind of thing. I, uh, I maybe thought some people could do it, but certainly not. Uh, it, it certainly isn't a common thing, I, I don't think. Uh, so, I, you know, I don't know. I never put much stock in it. Mm-hmm. And at any rate, while uh, Mark and I were doing the interview, um, uh, Carol, Mark's wife, called Lane. And Lane got on the phone, and they put her on speaker, and my wife and, and uh, Carol were sitting out in the living room, and Lane actually uh, remote-viewed the house. And apparently, when she does remote-viewing, she can see spirits in the house, uh, if there are any. And uh, she said that uh, she saw a woman who was surrounded by flowers, uh, elderly, little, sweet, and... Uh, she is the most rooted to this house, the, the new house that we live in. And uh, that's pretty consistent. Uh, the, the previous owner of the house, his wife passed away from cancer. She was, uh, I think the fact that Lane saw her in association with lots of flowers was kind of the big killer for me because uh, the gardens here at the house are unbelievable. I would hazard to guess there are probably thousands of planted bulbs of some sort, tulips, uh, I mean, all sorts of really beautiful flowers. This past spring, our entire hill was covered with uh, uh, daffodils and all sorts of other beautiful flowers. And it turns out that this lady was uh, a rabid gardener. Uh, This was her passion was the, the flowers. And this home and her flower beds were actually in better homes and gardens about 10 years ago. So that was kind of interesting. But then Lisa said that um, what really threw her for a loop was that she knew exactly the layout of our house. She described the layout of our house, including the stairs. She also said that there was someone sitting with a green shirt on in the corner, which would have been my son, who was sitting in the corner in a green shirt. (laughs) Hmm. And that kind of like really... It impressed me, to be honest with you, and uh, and that's predominantly why I asked her, you know, would you come on the show and talk to us about what you do? And uh, and she's agreed to do that, so we're, we're going to be doing a future episode, episode with her. But uh, she also said that there was uh, a man in the house as well, but he is more or less on the stairwell or in that area, that he tends to hang around that area. He's an extremely grumpy guy. And that's about all she could get from him. He was very, uh, I guess, in the background a little bit. And she said there was also another female in the house that was attached to a piece of furniture. Now, immediately, when I think of something like that attached to a piece of furniture, I immediately go to one of two things. I have a rocking chair that is just about 200 years old, and I have a... uh, a last rights box that belongs to my family all the way back to my ancestors in Germany. And it's been used for all of them when they died. And those are the two things I think about. She said, I'm seeing something with the drawer. It's not the chair. And she kept repeating. It's not the chair. It's not the chair. But we hadn't even mentioned the chair. (laughs) So again, that impressed me. And it turns out that it's actually a table that we have 
that we bought at auction that, that's extraordinarily old as well. She said that that is the woman that I saw near the uh, dining room table, which I thought was my wife, which I talked about previously. That's who that is. I mean, again, she just really floored me with what she had to say. Did she say what they want? No, apparently the... Uh, the female associated with the table is uh, in and out. It's not like a, it's not like she haunts the house. And, and apparently, the older lady who is the most prominent, I guess, uh, is just a previous owner. Um, she didn't die in the house, from what I understand. But uh, I do know that the neighbors have told me she's very sweet and had beautiful gardens that, after she passed away, fell into neglect. And I can personally attest that I sweated about nine gallons of sweat this year trying to get them back in shape to where they should be. And I'm failing miserably without her help. So, because uh, <laughs> we don't know what's a weed and what's, a, what's an exotic flower. But uh, she said, you know, there's, there's nothing to fear really from any of them. But um, she wouldn't be surprised if there were sightings of strange things in the house. Uh, and I have had some really strange experiences in this very room and uh, and out in the living room. So far for me, nothing really bizarre upstairs aside from the fractal alien experience, uh, which I don't think has anything to do with the house at all. And, uh, and... Uh, what else? There's too much going on. <laughs> Did you talk about, or do you want to talk about, I don't know, the, the alien that peered around the corner and then you saw it in your window? Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> That's the spirit. I don't care anymore. I'm already ruined, right? I mean, so yes, yes, you're I'm already, I'm already a nut, so what's the matter, right? <laughs> um, I mean, you don't play that halfway, right? <laughs> so yeah, I, I um, huh. actually, I have a hard time remembering it. Why don't I remember this, Jeremy? I don't know. I remember. I remember. I remember, I remember what I saw. But I can't remember what led up to it. Why can't I remember that? Were you asleep? No. Oh. Huh. Uh, it was paralysis. It wasn't a dream. This was just laying down. And, uh, you know, I listen to a podcast every night. Um, I listen to Erie Radio just about every night going to sleep. They have so many episodes that I take my pick every night. And I play uh, a few a week. And if you haven't heard of Erie Radio, www.spookylogistics.com. Erie Radio. <laughs> and uh love you guys Listen, and uh, learn, love laugh <laughs> what other words do with that? <laughs> anyway uh hey guys and uh anyway uh i was listening to um a podcast just the, the very beginning of it and i was laying on my right side uh which faces the doorway and um kind of had my arms outstretched out from underneath the covers. And all of a sudden I start feeling like I can't move my fingers. I can't move my elbows. I can't move my upper arms started to go down my chest. Everything else was mobile, but there was this, like this panic set in. And I started saying, no, no, no. Cause I know from prior experience that sleep paralysis, sleep paralysis for me does not work that way. Sleep paralysis for me, I wake up, I can't move, I freak out, I jump, I jerk, and I get out of it. Uh, this you really can't um, shake off. And it is a very creeping feeling. And I, I recognize that immediately in waking states as 
this is the onset of some sort of experience. And I just remember saying, no, no, no. And I managed to kind of like pull back towards the middle of the bed and it seemed to pull off of me. So I kind of sat up for a second and I looked around and, and I'm not seeing anything. And, uh, I laid back down and put my headphones on. And the minute that I put my hands down, it started again. This creeping up my, now it's up at my ankles and my feet, going to my knees, up my arms, spreading onto my chest. And it is absolute immobility. And I start saying again, no, 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 no. And about the time that I am able to kind of basically buck my hips hard enough to kind of sit myself partially up, (laughs) I look over in the doorway and hear, Oddly enough, on a side of the door that is almost even with a wall is something peeking around the edge of the doorframe. And I can't quite make it out, although I can tell that it's short. It's got a funny-shaped head, and it doesn't look like it should be there. But I have to, you know, again, mention that there's probably, I mean, this thing was sticking out six inches from the doorway, I would say, in thickness, you know, out from the doorway. And there isn't six inches on the other side of the door frame for there to be another half, which is a little weird. wall to your bathroom up there. Right. There's not room enough for there to be another half of this thing coming out unless it's in the wall. So I kind of freaked out. I, I kind of backpedaled in bed. I put my arm down, put my two arms backwards, and I look over to the window and the blind is up. And this is across the room from the door. Yeah, completely other side of the room. The blind is up. The window's open. The air conditioner's running. And there's one out on the roof. We have a, a we have a garage with a roof that you know attaches to our bedroom, sort of. That's kind of like you could literally go out our window and step onto the garage roof. And it's out there, kind of looking in, and it's got its it's got this look on its face, like, oh. <laughs> you know, like, whoops. And then it was it was gone. I mean, it, it, everything just kind of turned off. Everything was gone. And I just sat there and I was like... Well, wait, what does that mean? Everything just turned off and was gone? It pulled back from the window. Uh, we have a lamppost outside, so I would think that I would have been able to see reflected light on the edge of its face. And I didn't. It just kind of pulled back. I looked over at the door. It's gone from the door. But I know, and I know how dumb this is going to sound, considering I didn't see anything run, run across the floor. But uh, I think it was the same one. <laughs> uh, maybe in two places at once, or maybe being non-physical. Maybe it just was one place and then another. But it seemed like it was trying to get away from me. I don't know. I mean, that was just my gut feeling, that it's the same one out on the roof as was just standing by the door. And that, that was really that, that's it. I mean, that's really it. At that point, I'm you know my wife's asking me what's wrong, and I'm like, did didn't you see that? And she wasn't awake enough to see anything. So I don't know. I mean, it's really I so I gotta she, say she woke up after this happened. She woke up towards the end of it when I was looking at him out the window. That's when she said to me, "What's the matter?" And I was like, you know, I said, "You didn't see that." Did she look out the window? Yeah. And she didn't see it at that point. It was gone. I mean, you were seeing uh, it, and she, right at the same time she... 
No, 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 not at all. I mean, it, by all likelihood, I wouldn't have expected her to see it. She was looking at me, and I'm looking at it, and then it, it it's gone, and then she basically says, what's the matter? And I'm like, you didn't see that. You know, and I, I was, I remember being aggravated, like, you know, again, here it is, and you don't see it. So, I, you know, I don't know what to make of that. Uh, then I woke up at a, or, or, or wasn't asleep at when they thought I should have been or something like that. I don't know. Well, maybe it's more like um, the sort of coming over and pushing on the shoulder and taking a few steps back to see what you'll do. Mm-hmm. Or like a little woodland creature, like creeping up toward food that you have out in your hand, you know, and then, and then running back and then running toward it and then running back and trying to sort of make sure you're not going to slap them around. <laughs> well... I, I thought what you what you said was funny. I, I I even said to you on the phone when I was telling you about it that I don't necessarily think that I'd run if they just stayed where they are. Don't come at me. Just stay where you are. <laughs> you know, stay in that part of the room that I can just about make you out, or I can make you out okay. But just stay there. Don't come at me. And I don't think you have to make me not be able to move like that because I I don't like that feeling at all. Um, uh, I really don't like that feeling. Uh, and again, that's a loss of control. And, you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't like the idea of laying there. And that's reminiscent of, of being a kid for me is laying there and not being able to move and seeing things moving around you and not being able to do anything about it, not being able to get away or push them away or say wait or anything. You know, and your point was, well, the minute that you felt it coming on, the minute you, you, you started fighting it and saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> so they probably had every reason to be a little afraid so i don't i don't know i mean um uh i did however what i forgot to tell you was that i did have a dream that next morning right before i woke up i dreamt about when i crushed the one's face uh when i was younger Hmm. i dreamed that very very vividly i dreamed that again and that again was right around right around 215 230 somewhere in there Mm -hmm. so I don't know. Does anyone have you told that story on the show, or what? Before, that you had crushed one's face? I think so. I, I think I did mention that before. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's not a lot to tell other than I grab one by the face. I put my thumbs right on its the bridge of its nose, right in its center of its face. And when I squoze, it crumbled like old newspaper. Hmm. It was like paper. It was like it sounded like paper. It did crushed it like organic? paper. It felt like old paper. <laughs> Felt like uh, like a, a really old paper mache mask, you know, Was like there that. Anything underneath it? Uh, not that I can remember. Did it make a sound? Was it in pain? Uh, again, it was like the feeling like it wasn't there when I grabbed it. You know, <laughs> like I grabbed it, it was physically there in my hands, but it was gone already by the time I'd gotten a hold of it. Huh? I don't know how you how you really qualify a statement like that, but there was just a certain feeling when. They're 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 they have such presence about them that when you get a hold of something, you know, like just like uh, I mean, I don't I don't know, I don't even know how you explain this, but they, they have such a presence about them that if you would grab one and hold on to it, and it would put its arms on you, and you'd stand there, you would know that it was alive, that there was something in that form, whatever that form is, uh, no matter how vaguely defined that is. But when you grab one and they're not there, you feel like you're holding um, just an object, like a plant, you know, like a like a vase or a computer mouse or 
there's there's no you don't get any feeling from this you know whereas if i shake hands with somebody you know you're touching something that's alive when i grabbed that thing by the head it was just about immediate like oh i'm out you know <laughs> and when i squoze it just it crushed i mean my fingers went right through it almost like it was made of multiple layers of paper old paper like onion skin like phyllo dough like mm-hmm. like baklava you know it was kind of that kind of that that baklava you know phyllo dough mm-hmm. it just crunched and turned to like a like a not an ash but like a not not quite powdery like fish food like mm-hmm. flake yeah. like yeah. fish food like that that's what was kind of like like was all over me and of course when i woke up the next morning on the floor <laughs> there was no trace of anything hmm. but there's an overwhelming odor of like wet cardboard type smell so that's kind of that in brief in yeah, extreme. I, don't, I don't think you ever told that on this show at least well you know it's it's out there i'm sure on the net or well, on other other shows other podcasts but um so bringing this back to uh stacy horn so what does that do for you? Um, or, I guess, given given these situations between ghosts and a medium and so-called aliens, um, yeah. does it work for you to reduce this to some sort of information field that we are either accessing or, or somehow interacting with that maybe is alive itself, interacting as all of these different things? Does that really work for you, who is someone who's experienced... The variety of things? I mean, that's so broad to me, really. I mean, a field. What does that, I mean, what does that mean? What, you know, I, I don't know. Layer? Information yeah. layer. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know. I, you know, that's that's reducing it to something so simple. I don't think it is simple. I think it's, I, I think this whole thing, in a nutshell, the whole perception of things and the, I, I very much got into what she was saying about the spiritual stuff where people are seeing something that appears to be real in front of them or at least takes on this this form, but it is something else. It's not necessarily that person's spirit talking to them. It's It's something from inside. I could see that, but I can just as easily see it as something outside. Of, of, of us that that wants to impart some message or or whatever um or maybe that part of it is wishful thinking that you know nana and papa are are on the other side and they're okay and i know they're okay and they're feel i'm going to feel better about losing people so i don't know i think reducing it to a feel that we're just kind of like you know tapping into you know I, that's that's a little broad for me i think it's a lot deeper than that i think there's there's definitely the, the filters in play, like you brought up, and that was brought up by Jeremy Vaney, spelled V-A-E-N-I. <laughs> this is me talking. My name's Ritzman, R-I-T-Z-M-A-N-N. Anyway. I don't know why you even bothered with your name when everything's just going to get attributed to me. Anyway. Anyway. I love inside jokes, don't you? But... You know, you know how people talk about ufology and they say, well, maybe it's not just one thing. Well, I think ufology kind of is one thing. That's my opinion. But I don't necessarily think that that negates ghost phenomena or ESP or psychic abilities of some sort or another, even though those things may be rare. 
just like the UFO experience may be rare. I don't think you can really pigeonhole all this stuff into one spot. I mean, you're in New York and saw something walk by the screen. I mean, you're in New York. You're five hours away, and you're watching it over a computer monitor. Come on. I mean, there's something going on there besides individual perception of things. So my question is, you know, how does that, uh, how does that stream of uh, 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 that information layer, how do multiple people experience something together? How does, how does a tandem event happen? Um, are you both tapping into that same ink well at the same time? I mean, what, you know, that, it doesn't work for me really, but I think there are multiple paranormal things going on, but I think they are connected by something. It's that that's the something I'm looking for at this point is what, what's the connective part. And I think it's more to do with us and our perceptions or lack thereof that make these things rare. I think if we, I, I, th- I think if we were, a little bit more in tune or evolved or whatever you want to call it. I think that these things would be a lot less rare, mm-hmm. uh, which is how I think disclosure <laughs> is ultimately going to happen is that uh, at some point it will be something everybody knows and then everybody will experience this and it'll be like, yeah, yeah, I saw that. I've seen this. I've seen that. It won't be a weird thing anymore. Well, I was glad to hear her say that, um, that, things are changing in academia you know that that sort of goes with what i've been talking to the people at harvard about um i don't know if i mentioned this on the show but the woman janice i don't remember her last name um who's sort of the woman i've been talking to about what's going on at harvard with the john mack you know former john mack group of uh abductees or experiencers or whatever you know they're all sort of getting together and doing little workshops and thinking about coming out in some big way, perhaps, down the pike. Um, and she told me that, you know, she's also does work for NPR as a reporter, and that when John Mack was alive, I mean, just think about how few years it's been since he's been alive, since he was alive and being ridiculed for his work. But she said in that short amount of time, things changed to where even if scientific and media communities don't believe this stuff, they aren't laughing at it, just like um, just like Horn said. And she said the reason is, to, to her eye anyway, is that the story is still there. Even after they've laughed at the backwater hicks and the seemingly smart people and the scholars, I mean, it just is ever-presently there. It doesn't matter how much you try to laugh it off, it's still there. And that, yeah. to her, is a story worth following. And so there are people at Harvard um, who will have on the show who aren't even experiencers, um, but they're just, you know, physicists, um, et cetera, et cetera. And they're looking into this and trying to figure out, okay, what would the physics of an abduction be? How is this possible? Some of the people, uh, at, you know, the, the experiencers... Um, were given mathematical formulas from these, you know, whatever these beings are, and so there are other, again, not you know, non-experiencer uh, physicists trying to figure out if those mathematical formulas are anything or nonsense or what they could be about. So I, I think the even just the fact of having a, an academic clique of people come forward and say we're experiencers, at the very least. Their friends and colleagues who are, you know, trusted them before have to, like, step back and go, whoa, okay, we can't laugh at this anymore because I know you're sane and smart. Right. Yeah. You know? exactly. Yeah. 
and I and but that said, I mean that so I, I think that's the baby step. I think what we've been what we've been expecting is that the next step would be uh, you know the exopolitical people are like the, the next step is is disclosure from the government, and that's not the next step or acceptance by the media, and that's not the next step. The next step is what we're seeing, which is not laughing about it. <laughs> and then comes right. hopefully acceptance or whatever. But for instance, today, um, as I told you earlier, CNN did a story on uh, the British have released uh, their more of their UFO files. But the CNN report on Wolf Blitzer was, you know, the first report that they did ended up being a blimp that they they talked about. You know, of all these thousands of files, you know, of course they pick ones that are mundane explanations, so they can go, oh. No such thing, and then they they gloss over the Rendlesham Forest thing and say, you know, there are you know many many pages on that, but ultimately uh, they don't know what you know the government can't give an explanation for what that was. Right, and then and then they end it by saying the biggest year for aliens to have come to Earth was 1996, and but you have to look at what was going on TV at that point it was the X Files that was really popular in the movies, uh, Independence Day, so. That's how they wrapped it. They wrapped it by saying, you know, it's all related to that. And it's not that they don't have a point. It's that that's not what the point that they're presenting is. It's just a mean a way to go, okay, so we're going to report on this, but we're going to marginalize it. So now we can move on to the real news, which is healthcare or whatever, whatever, you know, the same five topics well, they talk about for months at a time. And I'll tell you the... Uh and that, and again, I just want to say that that's not so for people like Bassett, Steve Bassett and Greer and whoever who say that uh, disclosure is coming, that the media is really coming around. Well, it's it's if, if true, it's a far more of a slow crawl. The fact that they're doing UFO stories is not a good news if they're still marginalizing them. It's it's just the same old, same old. Right. Well, here's the thing about the CNN thing today and what you brought up on the uh, Wolf Blitzer show, was, which is and here's the moral of that story. Never trust a man named Wolf. <laughs> True. <laughs> I said that. Jeff Ritzman, R-I-T-Z-M-A-N-N. But I'll get credit for it. So if you liked it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, are you surprised that the exopolitical crowd thinks that any attention paid to the, by the major media to UFOs is positive? <laughs> right. I mean, come on. This is not a shock, right? No. And, and I do think you're right. I Well... My own, and I, believe me, I'm not a particularly a science-minded guy. I, I I enjoy reading National Geographic every month, and I definitely like hearing about all the new innovations and the, uh, you know, the the progress with the collider and all of that kind of that. It's all very fascinating. Don't get me wrong, but don't you kind of see this thing happening right about the time that all of this quantum mechanic stuff has has gotten more attention, has gotten more funding, has gotten more popular and and is also now i mean miss horn brought up uh kaku who is like to me the carl sagan of quantum mechanics he explains it's all us dummies out here who can't get our heads around it uh, i mean really you know the, these things are being studied hardcore these days and these things are grabbing public attention because there are some kind of weird tangents to them and did you just kind of think some of these scientists are going you know they're talking about this quantum mechanics stuff and uh Kind of stands the reason ghosts could, you know, do that. Oh yeah, well, what's kind of ixnay on the ghost day, you know, type stuff. So maybe they're backing off and saying the stuff is 
you know, is somewhat possible because of the advent of more science happening. And uh, we all know how science hates to be wrong. <laughs> so, you know, they're kind of taking that preemptive step back a little bit off of this stuff because there are things coming to light that are showing us that, hey, folks, you know, reality is not exactly what we thought it was. And a lot of things are under reevaluation, namely Newtonian physics. <laughs> you know, well, on, on that note, let me just add this. I was watching um, National Geographic Channel today and they were doing a thing on uh, the known universe. And that's the name of the show, and they were doing the Big Bang. Now, I've heard a lot about uh, dark energy. Dark energy. 70% of the universe is made up of dark energy, and nobody knows what it is. Well, I'm sure you've heard that, right? People talk about this like some catch-all. Well, it turns out that dark energy, they don't know what it is, but the way they explained it, it sounds like it's a placeholder to say we don't know what this is. And the thing that it's describing that they don't know is they used to believe that the you know the big bang was banging out and then it would collapse in on itself and have the big crunch uh, right. and then they discovered that that's not true that in fact there's something going on some some energy that's counteracting the gravitational pull of what they would expect would happen during a big crunch they don't know what that is they don't know what's counteracting the gravity that's what they're calling dark energy so they're just calling it it's like well we don't know what that is instead of saying we don't know what that is we'll call it dark energy that's what right. dark energy means so it doesn't mean anything. It's just a placeholder for either one thing they don't know or several thousand things they don't know <laughs> going on at the same time. It's not like 70... I mean, to my mind, anyway, it's not like 70% of the universe is dark energy. That is just meaningless, and we don't even know that that's meaningless. So National Geographic is good in that way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're learning more about what we don't know. You know, I mean, for years we've heard about all that we know, you know, all that we know about science and all that we know about space and all these, and, we, and we're finding out we don't know shit. I mean, really. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and so I would, I would expect some of these scientists to back off of paranormal subjects a little bit and say, okay, maybe there is something to this because maybe some of the new things that we're finding out might kind of possibly explain this or at least give us a little bit of a foothold on what it might be that people are experiencing this goes back to the grassroots effort that disclosure is not going to be a top-down thing it's going to be people who are considered legitimate in some way by by society at large step forward and then the people around them go oh (laughs) well i guess i kind of believe that and then it trickles it trickles out in the same way and again you know I, i i've been making this analogy it started off as a joke but the more i look at it the more it's true of the gay movement, which is, you know, it used to be a psychological dysfunction. It used to be classified as a psychological disorder. And then they formed lobby groups and said, well, that's not cool. And so uh, it was taken out of psychology textbooks as a disorder. And essentially, for that to hold, it's just got to be about gay people going, you know, mom and dad, you know, aunts and uncles, you know, cousins and brothers and sisters and friends and family. But we're just like you. We just kind of like sex with ourselves. Um, and then, and then anything wrong with that? Right, no, no, no. But I'm saying it's the acceptance of that by friends and family to where all of a sudden now it's normal. Now it's like, oh yeah, everybody's got a gay relative. Who cares? Right. Uh, and I think it's going to be the same way with this stuff. It's going to be like, oh yeah, Some, Uncle Jeremy's it, an abductee. So what? It's something that everybody knows. Yeah. yeah and then not- once you have that step in place, then it can become about well, okay, so what is this? What is this that's actually going on? 
now now that we're done laughing at it and all of that it's it's all of that we've just discussed and then one more thing which is that i think people just don't buy government uh military i don't even want to say cover-up stuff anymore because not just that but just ridicule i mean just their answers are bogus and so if their answers are bogus um then you know it's not it's not so difficult to take what we're saying at more face value i guess uh than than there was before if not complete face value I mean, I think the only stumbling block when you say about, you know, people from academia coming forward and saying, this happened to me, the only stumbling block I see with that is that there are psychological conditions that, you know, that do exist where a person is completely lucid and smart and intelligent and creative in every possible way, except that one thing to which they are batshit. Yeah, but what I'm saying that is, will, what that I'm could saying is be, I, I, think, I think those types of things... Those apply when you're looking at something, not when it's your friend. When it's your friend coming to you and saying, this is happening to me, it's a lot harder to like put up that wall of academic horseshit and say, well, you're schizophrenic or you're this or that because yeah. you've known that person, you know? And I think um, for, you know, for right or for wrong, uh, I think it, having that personal interaction is the thing that changes people's minds about this. They can no longer just sit back and be armchair skeptics. Now it's in their house, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, when you when you talk about the trickle down from that, yeah, I think that could definitely explode into something more. You know, because what if what if we weren't experiencers ourselves of some pretty weird stuff, and and we met someone who had, and and we, you know, we we said, well, that's really strange. I believe you. I believe something happened to you. I don't know what it is. And then, you know, in your travels and your other circles of friends, you meet someone else who's had something similar happen. I mean, there, there you go. There, you get it from two spots where you know both people who are not connected in any real way except being your friend, and they both had this experience. It could trickle that way, absolutely. But when you're talking about, and this is what everybody's rallying cry is, science needs to study this, you know, well – that's all well and good if science is, you know, if we're talking about scientists, one scientist saying to another, this happened to me, and that same scenario playing out, that may be one thing. But I think it's going to be met with a lot of resistance from uh, the psychological community. I think it's going to be uh, – I, I still think people who haven't experienced this will never understand what it's like. I mean, hell, for that matter, half the people in ufology don't even understand what it's like. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's been painted with a, you know, a broad paranoid brush. So, you know, all of these things are going to be obstacles in the way of certain things. But it's going to be slow, and it's going to gradually. Uh, you would think that something coming out like this, like what you're talking about with Max Group, that's a that's a great thing. I don't necessarily believe that that's going to be the that's going to be the start of the overturn or. Even even a small part of that, it might be. I tend to think this is going to be a, a thing where people just talk about this in general conversation, and it becomes something that you know. Why well, listen to Paratopia or I listen to Erie Radio or whatever? They begin talking about it, and eventually, this becomes something everybody just knows and talks about. Right. Yeah. It's, and the fact that you know Charlene has seen a flying saucer doesn't really mean that much anymore because so is Bob and so is Jill. Right. So now they're more comfortable to talk about something like that. So it's you know. acceptance versus disclosure. I mean, which do you think is more important for a healthy society? <laughs> to have something from on high come down and command it at you? Aliens exist. We've known about them all along. Right. And now let's 
give us money for war or peace or what you know whatever let's make it a political function of our society oh fuck you and not only that but we've lied about it to you for yeah we've lied to you for the last 85,000 years but now you finally get to know and and don't throw us in jail now right. I, I, I think it just makes more sense to have sort of a groundswell of acceptance and not a an elitist disclosure there's my catchphrase for the next X conference <laughs> that was said by Jeremy Vaney, D-A-E-N-I. <laughs> you know, doesn't it say something when, just say, for instance, something as explainable and mundane and hoaxy as the dairy UFO over in Ireland that I debunked on uh, ATS and, and on the second eclipse as a, a candy held <laughs> outside the windshield, for Christ's sakes. But But let's ignore that part of it for a second. The fact of the matter is, is that a small newspaper in a little town overseas put up this picture on their website and they got more hits. Their website got, you know, just pummeled to death. O'Hare, the Tribune, same thing. You know, uh, uh, an object is seen and people are, are just beating the hell out of this website to get on and read about it. Don't you think that says something about the people who will all poo-poo this stuff in a public way that there's so much attention anything anytime something happens it is this deluge of people going to hear and read about it from the source of which it came. Mm-hmm. I think that speaks a lot to the interest that there is for this and the fact that uh, not only do people want to talk and debate about it but they they want to hear what happened. They want to know. They want to see that picture. They want to talk about that information. And I think the very fact that that happens on such a huge scale, and I think I, I, I'm not sure how long it's been, but, you know, the, the two biggest uh, uh, search terms on the Internet were porn, sex, and UFOs. Right. That's going to be the title of my book. <laughs> uh, now, um, I mean, it's a, it's a huge, huge interest. There's a lot of interest for this for people, and in the paranormal in general, I think, you know, it's the same thing you'll see these huge numbers that these places are putting up as like our server got absolutely crammed last night. Well, that's got to say something, you know, that's got to say there's a lot of interest. I mean, people always talk about UFOs and ghosts and all that. It's a fringe subject. That's a a niche subject for so many people. And I don't think it is. I think there's a hell of a lot more people interested in it than, than, than we really give it credit for that people really give credit for in it. Uh, I would recommend to the uh, Harvard people, and, and I will. I'm going to go down there. I guess it's the end of September, beginning of October, somewhere in there. They've invited me to, uh, I don't know, participate in some way in one of their little workshop deals. Um, and I will recommend that if they do decide to do some big public event, you know what may be smart is to go through and figure out who are the Stacy Horns of reporter world. You know, who are these authors and these reporters who are not affected by the subject but have an interest in esoteric-type subjects, uh, you know, have shown that in the past that they're at least willing to write articles on them and be open to them, and bring those people together in a room and do a presentation for them. If you can yeah. bring those people from around the country, reporters who are actually interested and not and not just invite all reporters, you know, people are just going to bash it and all that stuff, then I think you have the giant trickle up, the groundswell, because yeah. then they will report it, and it will be positive or at least neutral, you know? 
Well, I mean, as long as you get reporters who are willing to treat it like Stacy did, or writers, authors that are willing to treat it in an intellectually honest way. I mean, that's really all that is required of it. That's it. Is that so much it's to really- ask reporters? I'll wait. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll keep waiting. They never. I'm going to go to the bathroom. <laughs> uh, really, that's all. That's all it boils down to. If they're willing to treat it in an intellectually honest way, that's great. I, I think I, I'll tell you what really is the smartest thing to me that that came out of this interview is what Stacy said about skeptics. As, as I don't entertain them, <laughs> you know, because they've got an agenda too, and and God knows we've seen that, haven't we? Because we all know Batwater's Woodbridge. We all know that what Sergeant Peniston laid his hands on was actually a lighthouse, right? We all know that. It's sad and yet thrilling at the same time that that uh, this revelation, this giant, huge revelation she gave us, that Persinger said maybe. I mean, just think about like, yeah. I mean, to me, that's like earth-shattering news, and yet it's just a maybe from a guy who's doing skeptical research. Uh, it says a lot that that's the case, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I know you and I have talked about when I when we brought that guy up on the air before that, you know, so what does that mean that people see these things when different parts of the brain are stimulated? Does that mean that they're it's all in their head, or does it mean that they're perceiving different things that normally can't be perceived by normal, you know, by, by just normal everyday life? Well, anytime you see them on a show, it's always it's all in their head. Well, yeah. He never yeah. says maybe. I, I, I'll tell you what, what got me to thinking initially about that whole idea of are they perceiving something differently because of the stimulus to their brain. And I'm not sure if it was if it was Persinger's work that they found this in or not. But I remember way back in the day watching sightings and uh, the good doctor was on there with his God helmet and uh, doing these experiments. And he talked about the near-death experience, that he could simulate the tunnel, all of that kind of stuff happening. But the one thing that was missing was the light at the end. There was no light at the end of the tunnel for these people. But the tunnel happened, and all of those other kind of things happened. And uh, I thought right then, I was like, because they're not dead (laughs) or dying. Uh, There's nothing there because that, uh, I don't know, that entryway, that door isn't swung open wide because you're not wanted yet or you're not expected yet or whatever. I mean, I thought that was kind of telling. If if that was was even his work, I don't exactly remember who they were talking about. I'm pretty sure it was. Hmm. Um, but the light was absent. I mean, I think that's really curious. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, the fact that he says maybe, that's pretty huge. Yeah. <laughs> pretty huge. All right, Peritopia, good discussion. Good discussion. Yes. Thanks to uh, Miss Stacy Horn. Yeah. Lovely yeah. woman. you got to have her back at some point, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that was... Uh, that was good. That was a good interview. Very proud. Go buy her very book proud. Go very buy proud her of book. you, Jeremy. Yes. Right. You're proud of me? So I'm very proud of you. Oh, Jeff, thank you. I'm proud of you as well. Oh, good. That's Jeff Ritzman, R-I-T-Z-M-A-N-N. Now, do you want to explain before we go why why this is happening? Why don't you explain it? Okay, I'll explain it so that you don't feel like you're going to look petty if you explain it, which is exactly yeah. why you're not going to explain it. Yeah, because uh, it, looks, it sounds dumb. <laughs> but it's true. For some reason, call it the trickster, call it... Uh, Charlie Brown syndrome. I don't know what you want to call it. Jeff has a habit of, well, feeling like a non-entity in this. 
<laughs> this field because, frankly, other people get the credit for his work. And now that we're working together, I uh, I seem to be getting the credit for things that he says. <laughs> and he'll see this on our message board. He'll see it on other message boards. Oh, yeah. And um, it, it I, I keep telling him it's the trickster thing that's finally going to break us up. He's going to finally, like, explode and be like, my God, I can't take this anymore, Vaney. So if we if we call it out as it is, maybe it'll just go away. It'll that's, the that's have one. to find some other way. Right. Jeff says uh, things independently of me, and then I get the credit for them. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't I don't I don't think of it in terms of credit. I think of it in terms of you know. Guess what Jeremy Vaney said this week? Blah. I'm like, no, I said that. <laughs> that's weird. Why would somebody? Do I sound well, not like just it? like once or twice? Like this happens. Pretty oh. much consistently throughout the week. It's oh, yeah. Stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean... Cases that he's worked on have been attributed to other people. Cases that he's broken have been attributed to other people. <laughs> I mean, it is pretty crazy. Uh, I mean, when you really step back and look at it, yeah. I mean, it is kind of weird. I mean, but the, the funny thing is, to me, is that whenever I say something really stupid... Oh by God, that's right on top of me. Guess what he <laughs> guess what he said this week, you know? I mean, I find it I just find it really weird. And and I mean, admittedly, I woke up in a really bad mood Saturday morning. And boom, there was something, you know, I read on the net and I'm like, No. <laughs> you know. And let's just make it clear that this just doesn't happen with me. It happens with us as well. Mm. is that we will say something on this show that all of a sudden gets parroted someplace else, and it's like, oh, you know, Dr. X or Mr. X, how brilliant of you. What? (laughs) No, we said that like two weeks ago. But I think that's different in that that's, you know, people just steal stuff or they just forget that they've heard it and they think it's their own original thought. And then, I mean, I guess, I don't know, for me it's like, well, I I guess i got to... Uh, just take it as a compliment or something, but but to actually have yeah. someone else attributed to your quotes and to your work, that's that's in a class by itself. Well, it is. It is. I mean, it it, it is weird when you step back and look at it. And I mean, believe me, I can go down the line, and it's it's really strange. I don't know what it is. I don't know uh, it, other than. It's exactly, I mean, I think George Hansen would have a field day talking about this because he's like, of course, of course, this is what happens. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, these groups don't stay together for very long. This is how this works. Don't you seem to understand that? You know, I mean, he would revel in this because this to me is what the trickster is. And I, believe me, we are going nowhere. I mean, well, both literally no and physically. words have ever been spoken. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wait, you meant that I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're not, this is not, you know, I don't harbor any animosity of this. It's just, it's kind of like, it's starting to freak me out a little bit. Well, you I, know? I feel like if we call attention to it and, um, and just make a joke out of it, it can't harm us. It's like a bully. <laughs> it's like, it's gotta it'll be go a joke. away eventually to lose interest. It'll go away. And, and, and really, and, and I think I've said this before, because I really don't want people getting the, the wrong impression that. I'm just obsessed with credit and all that because I, I really don't – in the big scheme of things, that's not that important. It's not It's not important at all. Uh, it's just – it's kind of freaking me out. And I don't know if it's just that – could it be something as mundane as people are skimming through the podcast? It could be. Yeah, it could be. But there are other things that are completely separate of this podcast 
that operate the same way for me for some reason. And I don't know why. You know, and on one side, you know, the 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 ego of me says it's because you're such a forgettable forgettable person. You're just not making a big enough impact. It's like, well, but people are talking. It's just they're not talking that I said it. <laughs> you know, it's really just kind of weird. And and this week it just really freaked me out. I was like, okay, what the fuck is going on? And I think I think you're absolutely right. I think it is part of marginality. I think it's part of of uh, the, the the trickster thing, I think that is exactly what it is. But hopefully, it's and, also part of learning. It's just that you you learn something, you internalize it, and then you forget where you heard it from, and it becomes your own. And so you start spewing it, and then when you spew it to the originator, the originator goes, "Wait, wait, wait! Those are my words." Right? <laughs> so yeah. I mean, you can either be honored by that, or you can argue the point. You know. I mean, hell, right. I've argued right. the point before uh, to somebody on our own message board who never chimed in again. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, don't you remember in the very beginning, there's somebody who came on the board and, and basically said pretty much everything that I, you know, has come out of my mouth or I've written. And I'm just like, mm, you know what? Some of that stuff is stuff that I've never heard elsewhere. So you're, I think you absentmindedly are quoting me to me, not realizing that I'm huh. the dude you read that said that. You know uh, what I mean? I think it was like yeah. that kind of thing. And then they went away. Yeah. Well, it is weird. So this this tonight is kind of an experiment. I'm I'm throwing it out in the light to see if it runs like a cockroach or whether it goes back underneath the sofa and torments me some more. <laughs> um, I mean, that's essentially it. I mean, I told you. I told you in the email. I said we're gonna we're gonna play with this thing and see what happens. I genuinely am hoping that something during this broadcast will be attributed to you that I said, and it won't be a joke that someone did. It'll actually be somebody legitimately putting this forward. And I'll say, okay, there it is again. I don't know. It's weird. It is weird. And and like I told you, it does. I mean, I think I think a lot of people would go, well, fuck it then. If, you know, I mean, as pissed off as I was Saturday in the bad mood that I was in, uh, you know, I was like, you know, what am I even doing this for? You know, what's the point? And, uh, you know, if if people aren't going to, acknowledge what you say and then expound on it that's all part of the building process it's all part of discussion and all of that and i feel like you're, you're starting the conversation and the doors get slammed in your face <laughs> that's kind of how it feels you know it's kind of like well i'd like to participate in this discussion but why and i think that might be the point is does it want to throw you off by aggravating you maybe i mean i don't know just being forthright and honest here. I mean, that's all I can say about it. I don't know. It's a little weird. If Jeremy says he sees it, I know I'm not crazy. <laughs> Whether or not I think there's some God force trying to fuck with us. I don't know. Don't know. We'll soon find I, out. I don't think so. But if everything that I if everything that you have said during this episode is then attributed to me, we will know something's up. <laughs> there you go. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Till next week, America. Bye bye. Bye-bye.